From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I asked, do you want to say she's lying? And they said no. And I said, do you want to say you're disputing her allegation? And they said no. They were looking for someone to try to bring down her account. And they were actually unable to find anyone who was willing to do it, even on background, let alone on the record. That's Jane Mayer. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker. I speak with her about her reporting on Brett Kavanaugh and accuser Deborah Ramirez, the FBI investigation, and the legacy of Anita Hill. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. We're coming to our nation's capital for a live show in Washington, D.C. On November 15th, stay tuned. We'll be at the iconic Lincoln Theater, right next to the also iconic Ben's Chili Bowl. So, President Obama, if you're listening, you've got two reasons to head down to U Street that night. My guest will be Chuck Todd, moderator of Meet the Press and political director for NBC News. This show is happening the week after the midterm elections, so there's going to be quite a bit to talk about. But there's always quite a bit to talk about these days. Head over to cafe.com slash tour. That's cafe.com slash T-O-U-R for details on our shows in New York, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. See you there. Hi, Preet. This is Landon from Los Angeles. Uh, my question is about FBI investigations as it pertains to witness interviews. Um, in this case, someone specifically like Mark Judge, who in sworn statements has said he has no recollection um, of the events or something to that effect. How does the FBI suss out the, the truth of a statement like that? I appreciate your time. Thanks. Landon, thanks for your question. That's the eternal question always, isn't it, in any investigation? How do you get the truth? It's a little bit what my book is going to be about, like that little plug for the future book. The one thing to make sure that everyone keeps in mind that some folks seem to be forgetting, and it's an important distinction, this FBI investigation is a background investigation of someone who's nominated to the highest court in the land. And it's important and it's serious, but it is different from an investigation that the FBI or another federal law enforcement agency might do to try to prove that someone committed a crime. Now, it may be that sometimes you get evidence during a background investigation that is sufficient to prove a crime. I don't think that will happen here, but but there are two different things. And there are different tools that are permitted. So in a criminal investigation, if we were going out to try to find out if somebody violated the racketeering laws or committed a homicide or engaged in some kind of fraud, the FBI, working usually with the U.S. Attorney's Office, would have a lot of ability to do various things, including wire people up, issue subpoenas for bank documents, um, do surveillance, all sorts of things, including the use of deceit to try to find bad guys who've done bad things. A background investigation is a serious undertaking But it's a vetting process. It's not an effort to go after somebody. They don't have the ability to use those kinds of process. They basically use shoe leather. They interview people. They talk to people. They use their common sense. In this case, there are a lot of obstacles in getting to the truth, namely the passage of 36 years in time and the uncertain memories of various people and locating who the folks might be with respect to the allegations either by Dr. Ford or by Ms. Ramirez. With respect to the interview of of Mark Judge, I'll I'll just say this about that. Some people have suggested in favor of Brett Kavanaugh that there are these other witnesses who have put in a piece of paper, which they've sworn to apparently under penalty of felony or perjury or whatever phrase they want to use, and that's sufficient. It doesn't work work that way. You know, lots and lots of people don't want to talk to the cops. They don't want to talk to the FBI because it will stress them out or you know, because they want to not implicate somebody in something bad because they're close to that person. 
it is a very big difference between soliciting from someone a document that probably a lawyer prepares for them that's typed up as opposed to sitting down in a room, subjecting yourself to an interview by an FBI agent. And lots of times people have issued, in my own experience, have issued broad denials or said they don't have a memory of an event. But then a couple of things can happen when you actually sit down with someone and you have the weight of law enforcement on your side and you have a badge, you you know they have a gun, although you don't use the gun. And you look someone in the eye and you say, what do you remember? But you don't go about it quite that way. You You don't start with the end, right? You ask other general questions about that time, know who you may have spoken to, uh, what your recollection was of parties generally, the nature of your friendship with Brett Kavanaugh. There are lots and lots of questions that you can ask. And then over time, if the person does have a recollection and was just trying to avoid answering, you have a better chance of them coming forward. Sometimes you actually jog people's memories. The point is that the way to get to truth is not just by use of compulsory process like you have in a criminal investigation. There's a lot that can be learned by going and talking to people. And You know, Mark Judge obviously is a witness who's put in that bedroom at that house at that party explicitly by Dr. Ford, so must be talked to. In my view, they should talk to a lot of other people also. Hi, Preet. This is Ben Ludke calling from Bellevue, Washington. I wonder if you can help explain what's up with the FBI this week. First, the director couldn't be reached by Senator Flake last week at a critical moment. And this week, investigative journalists are being contacted by former peers of Brett Kavanaugh's who are coming forward with information that may well contradict assertions he gave while under oath during last week's meeting with the Judiciary Committee. At least some of these former classmates have said that they're not being contacted by the FBI after coming forward. I'd like to give the FBI the benefit of the doubt, but I'm struggling to understand what seems like a very limited scope of response on their part. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work. Ben, thanks for your question. So can I just say right off the bat that I don't know what to make of these reports. I don't believe all of them. You know, we're taping this around lunchtime on Wednesday, and there have been competing reports all through the weekend about whether or not the White House is directing a limitation on who can be interviewed and who can't be, whether the White House counsel is doing that, whether the Senate majority leader is doing that, and, and directly out of the president's own mouth. And Kellyanne Conway, I saw, saying, you know, they're not placing any restriction at all. I don't know if they're, you know, trying to have it both ways. I think that the FBI, in order to do its job, in order for it to be seen to be doing its job properly later, should be you know, fairly expansive in the investigation, you know, not just for their own reputation, but I think for the reputation of Brett Kavanaugh also. Because at the end of the day, there's no further corroboration found uh, with respect to these allegations, and Brett Kavanaugh gets confirmed to the bench. It will be better for him. It'll be better for people's respect for the court. It'll be better for people's respect for the process if they have done more rather than less. I know FBI Director Chris Wray by reputation, not personally, but I think this is a very important moment for him. I think this is a moment where the FBI has to pay attention to how it is perceived and make sure that it's not doing the political bidding of one side or another. You'll hear in my conversation with Jane Mayer coming up all the ways in which she and Ronan Farrow in the New Yorker article tried to make sure that they were correct in reporting on these allegations by Ms. Ramirez. They interviewed lots and lots of folks. And you know, listen for what she says about that. And I think it has some bearing on the question of what the FBI should be doing. Hi, Preet. This is Jonathan calling from Brooklyn, New York. I've been really educated by your show. And you said something a number of months ago about how, I think it was when defense lawyers, when they can't pound the facts, they pound the law. They can't pound the law. They pound the table. Sadly, that's what we saw happening 
in the hearings that it, it devolved from a, a question and investigation about the facts of the allegation to that, that manufactured righteous outrage by Lindsey Graham. Anyway, I just wanted to say that, that your comment has stuck with me about that and, and never has it been more in evidence than by the Republicans. Thank you. Jonathan, thank you for your comment slash question. That's a very common phrase that lawyers use in attacking other people's points of view. I didn't make it up. I wish I had. And it's been around for a long time. Look, to my mind, there was a lot of sound and fury, some of it coming from the nominee himself, Brett Kavanaugh, some of it coming from Democratic senators, some from Republican senators. And in particular, you mentioned Lindsey Graham and his, I don't know if his outrage is manufactured or not. I think it's not well-placed. Let me sort of amplify what I said in the special episode I did with Ann Milgram a few days ago. You know, the way I look at it is this. You know, people are, have been using these analogies of this being a job interview as opposed to a criminal prosecution. And that's, you know, correct as far as it goes. Here's how the Constitution works. And here's how the standards, I think, really should be applied and thought about. So the Constitution provides that two branches of government have a role in the appointment of a Supreme Court justice, right? The president appoints, the president nominates, in other words, and the Senate gives advice and consent. Two different inflection points where some standard has to be applied about whether to proceed before the person actually takes up his or her seat on the bench. President Trump had a whole list of people that he said he was choosing from, and he chose Brett Kavanaugh. And there was a vetting process that took place. And the point that I want to amplify is that if these allegations came along, and let's say the White House counsel and President Trump made a provisional decision to pick Brett Kavanaugh, and during the vetting process, uh, they had occasion to interview Dr. Ford and Ms. Ramirez, and these allegations came forward. If rational people during that process of deciding if there were problems in the background of Brett Kavanaugh, also relating to his other conduct in high school and whether or not they found him to be credible, I think President Trump would have been well within his rights even though he had made a provisional pick for the Supreme Court to pick someone else and to remove him. And I'm willing to bet a lot of money that I don't have that Lindsey Graham, if he had been aware during the vetting process of all these problems, even if it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, if they were credible, both for political and other reasons, I bet, would have said, you know what? I think Brett Kavanaugh is a good man. We're never going to get to the bottom of this, but they're credible allegations and we're not going to pick him. Now, would that have been a miscarriage of justice? No. And they wouldn't have said it's a miscarriage of justice because it's not about taking away his liberty. It's about the discretion of one of the branches of government, the executive branch, in the process, deciding that balancing all the evidence, it would be better to pick someone else. So that didn't happen in the vetting process. Brett Kavanaugh is nominated. He's not yet on the Supreme Court, right? There's another step that's provided for explicitly in the Constitution. Now the Senate gets to do its sort of equivalent of the vetting process. And that's what you've been seeing unfold. And so these things have now come up during the second phase before Brett Kavanaugh has been appointed to the bench. And I think that they are well within their rights, even if it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. If they think there's credible evidence, I think it's perfectly proper for them to decide on this basis, along with the other bases they might have, that Brett Kavanaugh shouldn't be appointed to the Supreme Court. I mean, the reason you have such a high standard in a criminal case is people are, generally speaking, entitled to liberty and to freedom. And if you're going to take that away, then you have to have a lot of proof, and you have to have a lot of due process, and you have to have a jury, and it has to be unanimous. There's no entitlement to being on the Supreme Court like there is to general liberty. That's all. This next question comes uh, in an email from Stefan, who writes, Love the show. 
With these new allegations of fraud brought forth by the New York Times, what, if any, are the implications for the Trump administration? I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Stefan. You know, it's unclear what the implications are. A couple of points to make at the outset. That is a really long article. (laughs) It took a really long time to read it. There are summaries of it. People are talking about it. I think it's 14,000 words, which, because I'm thinking in this way, is like a sixth of a book. So a lot of work went into it. People have been commenting, notably, that the New York Times, whatever you think of them, they do have standards. They do have lawyers. And they do care about the allegations that they make, notwithstanding what the president may say about them. So, you know, there's been this debate for some time about whether or not a newspaper should call a lie a lie, as opposed to misleading, whether a newspaper should call something a crime or not. What's extraordinary about this article that a lot of people who've been around the block for a while have noticed is the use of the word fraud is there, outright fraud is there. And those are strong words coming from an institution that generally can be somewhat conservative about these kinds of things. So that's, I think, important and significant. Second, the length alone of the article is not what is impressive about it. It's that the length is informed by and required by the tens and tens of thousands of documents that somehow got into the hands of the New York Times and the specificity of the allegations about how taxes may have been avoided, how deductions may have been taken that were not lawful. Now, the implications with respect to you know criminal consequence, I think, are minimal and probably negligible because, as you know, there's something called the statute of limitations. All the conduct alleged in the article, as far as I could tell, goes back a lot of years. So there's probably nothing to be done with two caveats. One is that you know there may not be the same kind of limitation for a civil case. For example, the New York State Tax Department has suggested that it's going to be looking at these things, and maybe there will be some consequence there. But the other thing I will say is, you know, industrious prosecutors listen to the news, and they read the paper. And if it's the case that there was a particular mechanism by which money was transferred from Fred Trump to Donald Trump and his siblings unlawfully, and that seems to be, you know, so the MO of the family, you know, a prosecutor might ask the question based on the newspaper article and other evidence that they might come across, is this same process happening now with respect to Donald Trump and his offspring, of which he has many? I think it's an interesting question, and it might be the kind of question that a prosecutor might look at. You know, it's also been pointed out that Trump doesn't seem to have really denied those things. I think in the tweet he sent this morning, and maybe there'll be a more full denial later, he said it's old and boring news. To my knowledge, old and boring is not a defense to anything, although the statute of limitations might be. My guest this week is Jane Mayer. 24 years ago, she co-authored the definitive book on the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas hearings. Now she's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and she's at the center of reporting on the allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Along with Ronan Farrow, a former guest right here on the show, she broke the news of allegations by Kavanaugh's Yale classmate Deborah Ramirez. And as you'll hear, she's still chasing leads. We talk about how she gauges the credibility of her sources, where the FBI should look, and how the Senate would vote if half the members were women. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Burrow. Is there anything harder to move than a sofa? We've all lugged sofas up and down stairs, onto the roofs of cars, and stuffed them into tiny elevators. 
at least all New Yorkers have, it's like a rite of passage here. But Borough is changing all that with a fully customizable sofa that's easy to move and built to last. The modular design means your chair can become a loveseat and your loveseat can become a sofa simply by adding one seat at a time. Also handy if you have a really small elevator. When you order online at burrow.com, you can customize the color, size, even armrest height and leg material. Personally, I have a charcoal chair with high armrests. Everything is personalized to you, or me in that case. Burrow is the only sofa that grows with you and actually fits with your life. Get $75 off your order by going to burrow.com slash preet. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash preet for $75 off your purchase. Burrow, furniture that's fit for modern life at home. Jane Mayer, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so glad to be here with you. So I had a line of questions that I'm going to abandon for the moment because something very dramatic happened. We're recording this on Tuesday about lunchtime in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club. And right before we began taping, you got a phone call and we had to delay taping for a couple of minutes because you said you had to take it. You got on the phone and you said, I'm doing a live taping with Preet Bharara. I can't talk to you right now. And then you said other things that made it seem like you have a new story coming. Are you going to reveal here on the show what that was about? (laughs) Uh, I can't do it on the show, but I can tell you that this has been the most extraordinary story. This is the story surrounding the the confirmation battle of um, Brett Kavanaugh. And there are so many people calling with tips and people sending affidavits that they've sworn out and are giving to the FBI that my phone keeps ringing. And that that was yet another... Another lawyer with another affidavit that's been submitted to the FBI in this case. And then they also call you? And then they call us, yes, because there's a sense, I think, that the process may not be working fast enough or well enough, that there's a certain kind of um, dysfunction surrounding this reopened background investigation, and people feel the FBI is not listening to them. And so these are basically citizens who have information they think is important, and I'm not sure it always is, but in some cases, I think it probably is, who feel there's no other channel to go to. They're trying to get it to the Senate. They're trying to get it to the FBI. And if that fails, they come to the media. So we're kind of the the place of last resort. Not always. Sometimes they come to you first. And some of your earlier stories have been things that I think law enforcement officials didn't know about, right? That's certainly true sometimes. And traditionally what happens with this kind of reporting is the press will document something and then the Senate will hold hearings maybe and look into it. But this is a a very compressed and fraught situation. And so people are feeling unusually urgent about it. That phone call you just got, how many times a day does that happen to you these days? That happens to me It very rarely normally, but on this story, it's happened to me all day long for the last week and a half. So do we need to take a break midway (laughs) through so you can check your phone and call (laughs) someone back? Or are you going to be able to make it through 45 minutes? I think if they can't wait 45 minutes, they'll probably take it to some other news organization and I'll just lose it that way. But anyway, I'm I'm willing to run that risk in order to have a conversation with you. And the call you just got, is that you think it's a credible claim? I know it's a credible lawyer. I have to find out what's in the affidavit and who swore it. Does that matter to you that it's a credible lawyer? Uh, Yeah. You're in a vulnerable position as a reporter where people can try to send you false information. And there are very strong feelings on all sides of this confirmation battle. And probably one of the worst things that could happen would be to be snookered into printing something that's a fake 
And so, yeah, you've got to be incredibly careful. You've got to make sure that the lawyer is legitimate, but also even more so make sure that the affidavit is legitimate. Is Michael Avenatti a credible lawyer? You know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really know. And I have not dealt with Michael Avenatti that much. I find his grandstanding unnerving. I'm all about getting those facts out there. But don't wreck someone's reputation just with unfounded innuendo. I'm not saying he's doing that. I haven't looked into all of the details of his current client, Julie Swetnick. I'm not in a position to say she's telling the truth or she's not telling the truth. I think it's impressive and important that she swore this out under threat of perjury. She may very well be telling the truth, but I feel it would have been smarter if her affidavit spoke instead of her lawyer going out there and going on national television, previewing it in this kind of Barnum and Bailey way. Right. Let's take a step back. The Kavanaugh hearings, the reopened hearings were last week. There was dramatic testimony. A lot of people found credible. Most people, I think, found credible. Even those who support Brett Kavanaugh found credible by Dr. Ford. But then you worked on a different story with respect to a different allegation by someone named Deborah Ramirez. Just quickly summarize what that is for folks who may not be completely up to speed on it, because some things have happened in the last day that strike me as very troubling about those allegations and what Brett Kavanaugh knew about those allegations. So briefly, what's the story with Ramirez? So the Ramirez story takes place the year after the Christine Blasey Ford allegation. And it's an allegation made by a classmate of Brett Kavanaugh's at Yale in the 1983-84 school year. And she recalls and spoke to us on the record about her recollection, which is of a sort of drunken dormitory party in which she was quite inebriated herself, but she remembers Brett Kavanaugh exposing himself to her, pushing his penis in her face, which forced her to touch it to push him away. And she describes how She was brought up quite conservatively. She's Catholic and had always hoped to postpone having any kind of sexual contact like that of any sort until she was married. And she felt humiliated. She felt embarrassed. She described hearing him laughing at her and the other boys who were there laughing at her. And when we wrote the story, Before we did, we tried to find as much corroboration as we could, and I think we found some pretty serious corroboration. We also tried to check out anyone who might suggest that she was lying. So we spoke to lots of different people who knew Deborah Ramirez or people who might have thought she had a credibility problem or a political problem, and we found none of the above. Everybody we interviewed, including the people who were put forward by Brett Kavanaugh's team, who knew Deborah Ramirez, said she's a very truthful person. When you say we, you're referring to yourself and? It's not the royal we, which is um, (laughs) uh, um, Mark Twain once said, it's either the royal we or I'm speaking in the we because I have worms. It's neither of those. (laughs) Um, It's it's Ronan Farrow, who's my co-author on this story. But, you know, when you see a story like that in The New Yorker, there's another we also. There's quite a process behind it that readers don't get to see. There's a team of people. So Ronan and I were doing the reporting. But in addition, 
there are fact checkers. There's somebody who was on the phone for, I think, over two hours with Deborah Ramirez going through every single fact with her and her lawyer. There are our lawyer, our in-house lawyer, who's going through it, who's fantastic, and a number of editors, everything from copy editors on up to the editor of the magazine, David Remnick. And we were conferring constantly on this story and doing everything we could to make sure that it was absolutely right because we knew that it was incendiary. What was the timing of your first learning of the Ramirez allegations? It ran on the 23rd, I think, of September, so maybe two weeks before that. Two weeks before that. In the story, you and Ronan write that it took Deborah Ramirez a few days to think about whether or not, and I'm paraphrasing, so correct me if I'm wrong because it's your story, to think about whether or not she remembered it correctly. And I, I think the phrase, and it's been used to criticize the story, was something like she took six days to go over her recollection and consult with a lawyer, and after that time she felt comfortable sticking by what she had said. Shouldn't that give us a lot of pause about her story? What, what does that mean to spend six days going back over your recollection on something that happened 35 years ago? Well, that's one way to look at it, and that is how critics have looked at it. I actually thought it showed her honesty. She was quite upfront, and we were quite upfront. I hope it showed our honesty in being very transparent about this process. I'm probably older than you, but when it comes to remembering something 35 years ago, I think I too would have to probably call my friends at the time and say, do you remember this? Did I say that? Or did you say that? Or were you in the room? I mean, to me, it seemed the most natural thing. And I thought it also was impressive that she cared so much. She didn't just say, oh, yeah, I remember this. She wanted to be absolutely certain. She went through it. She confessed up front that she had been drinking, so she wasn't entirely certain that her memories were as clear as she wanted them to be. And it was only after she'd gone through this process and conferred with others and talked it through with a lawyer that she finally felt that she was comfortable going on the record and telling this story. And to me, again, one of the things that was, I think, most important was that what she was saying is, I want the FBI to investigate this. I want to make a sworn statement on this. If my statement is wrong, I know that I would be committing perjury. And what that story really was about was saying, this is what's going on right now. This is a snapshot. There's this nomination moving forward, and a woman's coming forward on the record, and she wants the FBI, and the Senate is looking at it and trying to investigate too. That is the state of play in that story. Did she come to you and Ronan in the press before she made any effort to go to the committee or the FBI? She actually did not come to us. We heard her name. And when we heard her name, we sought her out to try to see if she would speak to us. And Ronan convinced her to speak to him off the record. And eventually, during that six-day period, she became emboldened to go on the record. Does there come a point in the decision to publish the story about something like the Ramirez allegations, which are serious and have a great consequence for the country. Is there a tipping point when the decision is made, now we have enough to publish? Because I think people are confused about what the line is when you find something credible, what you publish, when you publish. And also, is there, I know there's multiple questions, is there something to be the competition so that there's some pressure, if you have a story, to put it out before the other guys do? 
There's always journalistic competition, but that really has to be the least important pressure in your life. I mean, the most important pressure is finding the truth, being sure it's true, and then deciding whether you've got enough documentation to feel that you can go public with it. And so in in the Ramirez case, it was a hard call because we knew it was a devastating story and that it was an embarrassing story, obviously, for Kavanaugh and one that could really hurt his reputation. Nobody takes that lightly. So what goes into making a judgment call like that are all those people I talked to you about who were involved in the decision and a lot of information that the public never sees. Part of what was going on behind the scenes was we knew who the background sources were who were talking to us, and we knew what their level of credibility was, where the public doesn't get to see that. But our fact-checkers speak to the background sources in addition to those who are on the record, and they too weigh in on it. And then there are other bits of information we have that maybe we aren't able to put on the record, and that is true in this case. And so there's a bigger picture that we have by the time that we go to press than than the public is able to see. The problem with that is, is the nature of things, but the problem with that is that the public has to then trust all this other stuff that you have that is not reported, that's not in the article, that gives you a basis for feeling confidence in the reporting. Maybe. I mean, but the thing is, you also, I mean, and that piece was was extremely and kind of unusually transparent about the reporting process in that you had Deborah Ramirez. We describe how she gradually came forward and changed. And we also have lots of information in there from the Kavanaugh team, which shows you what questions they've got about her. And so the public has conflicting information in that story, and it doesn't say necessarily she's 100% right or that he's 100% right. It's the information that we had, and we're sharing it with the public. By the time we went to press, we were absolutely certain it was the right story to tell. We had Deborah Ramirez on the record talking about her firsthand experience, and we had no reason to doubt her credibility. And we had touched base with the White House and with the Kavanaugh team, and none of them gave us any reason to distrust her. I want to get to something that is kind of troubling that's been in the news with respect to these allegations in the last day. And let me start by asking you this question. Do you have any understanding about when it is that the Kavanaugh people or the White House might have known about the Ramirez allegations? Because you said that you folks at The New Yorker only learned about them, say, mid-September. Do you have any reason to believe that the Kavanaugh people were expecting this to come out at some earlier point? Well, of course, Judge Kavanaugh, in front of the Senate, swore that he only learned about it from The New Yorker. So it's a real problem for him if there's information suggesting that he knew of it earlier. To be clear for folks who may not have read these reports, as we sit here today on Tuesday, I believe at some point yesterday, NBC reported there were apparently text messages from earlier in the year, I think in the July time frame, um, between and among classmates of Brett Kavanaugh's from Yale that suggest a concern about allegations by Ms. Ramirez. So I've seen the text messages in question here. And what they show is that there was a friend of Brett Kavanaugh's who was looking for a particular photograph. And that photograph 
features Deborah Ramirez and Brett Kavanaugh happily looking like they're on friendly terms at a wedding 10 years after they graduated from Yale. It's not clear from the text why uh, the Kavanaugh camp was looking for this particular photograph. We need to know that. But if, in fact, they were looking for it in order to create some kind of cover story, I think that would be devastating. But it's not absolutely clear at this point. So there are no texts that you're aware of that show clearly that Brett Kavanaugh was trying to, you know, in advance build up a defense other than this photograph. What you can see is in advance of our story running by a day or two, they were scrambling, the Kavanaugh team, that is. There are references to Brett and to Brett's person, meaning somebody who's working on his nomination team, trying to get classmates at Yale to go forward and cast dispersion on the Ramirez story. There's one woman in particular, Karen Yara Savage, in in these texts, and she's talking with a friend, and she's saying, my story is that I was really good friends with Debbie Ramirez, and she never told me this. And she then also mentions that she's been asked by Kavanaugh's group to go on the record and say this. So you can see that they're preparing a, a defense before our story comes out. I actually am the person who spoke with Karen Yarosavage. I mean, so I'm, I'm, I was the reporter on the receiving end of these efforts. Um, it is clear to me, I can confirm, the Kavanaugh camp was putting forward character witnesses who were trying to poke holes in the Ramirez story and that they they went from being on the background to calling back and saying they would like to be on the record, meaning they want to appear to be even stronger. And my sense was that it was Kavanaugh and his people who were trying to push these witnesses onto the record to talk about this. The interesting thing to me, though, as the person who was interviewing these character witnesses for Kavanaugh who were trying to challenge the credibility of Ramirez, is that they were really weak in their arguments. I really did not interview anybody, even from his group, who could say or would who wanted to say outright that Ramirez was lying. And this was, again, important to why we published the story. Nobody said she's a liar. Nobody said she's doing this for political reasons. I asked, do you want to say she's lying? I gave them the opportunity, and they said no. And I said, do you want to say you're disputing her allegation? And they said no. So they were looking for someone to try to bring down her account, and they they were actually unable to find anyone who was willing to do it, even on background, let alone on the record. Just to be clear, when you say Kavanaugh's people, who are you referring to? You don't mean lawyers who officially work for the White House or for the Justice Department, who are normally the people you consider to be the nomination's team. It was sort of his private posse, I think. and His, his, his private posse. <laughs> um, his friends who were trying to help him get through this grueling nomination process. We did also talk, I have to say, to the White House, and it was the White House which said in the beginning, do you want to talk to anyone who might knock down your story. And of course, as reporters, we'll talk to everybody. We want to know. If there's a flaw in the story, we want to know it before we go to press. So we got the name of Karen Yarosavage and her phone number from the White House. On the scale of 1 to 10, how much pushback did you get on this story? And I assume that there are some times where, you know, people are screaming and threaten legal action. That's a 10. And, you know, a zero or a one is where they're like, you know, fine, go ahead. You've got it totally right. And then the second question is, does that factor in in any way in confirming 
the correctness of your story depending on where on the spectrum the pushback is or not? It's really interesting, the reaction to this story, because the pushback from people supporting Kavanaugh has all been about whether we met journalistic standards. But I have yet to see any pushback that says that Deborah Ramirez is a liar. She's gone to the FBI now. She's given her account. The former Boulder district attorney, who was her first lawyer in this, said she was the most credible client he had seen in 35 years. People who are classmates who know her, classmates who are friends of Brett Kavanaugh's who know her, nobody is saying this woman is a liar. So we're not getting the pushback that you get if you've made a big mistake. We're nothing like it. We're just getting people who are unhappy. We wrote the story. Although just to push back on that for a moment, in fairness, they don't have to call her a liar because there's enough in the story, if you want to argue this, given that she took six days to refresh her recollection, review her recollection, consult with a lawyer. It's been a long time. So it, it may be the best way to refute it is not to cast aspersions on her as a liar, but to say, which I think they've been doing, like, she's just wrong. She's mistaken. The biggest issue really that's been raised is if this party took place and this behavior took place there, why are there no eyewitnesses willing to speak out about it? And I will say, as somebody who did a lot of the reporting on the people who were at the party, Deborah Ramirez has given us names of people she thinks were there, and we have gone to the ends of the earth to get a hold of them. And I will say that I think that the likelihood that his friends who were implicated in the same situation, the likelihood that they're going to come forward and say, sure, I was there and he did this, is always going to be very, very low. You're not going to get people who were involved in some kind of scandalous behavior to come forward and say, I was a participant in it. Let me tell you about it. So it doesn't strike me as surprising that basically what most of these people who have been named to be at the party did when we reached out to them was duck. Some of them have never returned phone calls and others have said, gee, I just don't remember that. And what I think is really important to know now, since we know a number of their names, is are they speaking to the FBI? Is the FBI speaking to them? Yeah. Some of these people might say to a reporter, gee, I don't remember. But when the FBI knocks on the door, the question is, do they give him a statement or do they say, I just don't want to talk? How many people did the New Yorker speak to who may have had knowledge about the party or were at the party? Somewhere about a half dozen, I would think. It was a group of about a half dozen people that could have been there, that we believe were there. And we've probably spoken to between 50 and 100 people who were in position to know something about this. So let me ask you this question. If you spoke to that many folks as journalists to decide whether or not it was up to snuff to put in The New Yorker, and now the FBI has been given presumably authority to investigate this allegation, do you believe that they should do the same amount of work that you guys did before publishing an article? I think it would be good if they did. I really do. I mean, I think this is an incredibly important allegation, as is Christine Blasey Ford's allegation. This is a lifetime appointment we're talking about on the most important court in our country. So 
I think the importance of getting it right is absolutely paramount to everything else. I don't understand why any artificial time limits would be put on this. The uh, consequences could scarcely be bigger. So they better be very right when they hand in a report. And it does take time. I mean, the one thing I know from investigative reporting is the one thing that makes the difference is time. It takes a while to find the right people to talk to and to talk to them enough that you feel that you've gotten the truth from them and to find any kind of documentary evidence that you can. It just takes time. Do you have a view on whether or not Brett Kavanaugh should be on the Supreme Court? You know, I try not to even think like that. <laughs> it's you just, anticipated my it's next question. A, <laughs> I was going to ask you, is it, you know, for a journalist, you or Ronan Farrow or anyone else, I mean, maybe you personally have a view and you're entitled to that, but how do you keep that from infecting your reporting? It's just the way a, a doctor or some other professional would deal with a situation. You just have to be professionally detached. And whether you want this person on the court or not, if this person committed a sexual assault, even if they were your favorite candidate, you would still be beholden to the public to have to put that information out. And even if they're your least favorite candidate and somebody's making a false allegation, you would be beholden to get that information out. And I think, you know, the best way to illustrate how this is not a political job is that the last story that Ronan Farrow and I worked on prior to the Kavanaugh story was about Eric Schneiderman, the attorney general at the time of New York State. It would be hard to find a more outspoken critic of Donald Trump and someone more up to his eyeballs in the fight against Trump. So if this were political and we were just trying to help one side of politics and not the other, we would never have written that story, which resulted in Eric Schneiderman having to step down in two hours and 57 minutes from his job. Did um, you have a stopwatch? Uh, <laughs> it was just... <laughs> That's very precise, Jane. It was so incredible. I was sitting there at the dining room table with my husband and my daughter and looking at our phones, and I thought he would probably have to resign, but I didn't think it would happen quite that fast. Was that an easier publication decision, the story about Eric Schneiderman? And for the record... Uh, story that you guys wrote, making clear that Eric Schneiderman had actually physically assaulted people with whom he had romantic relationships. Was that an easier story? It wasn't an easy story. I don't think the thing is, none of these stories are easy. Among other things, there's a feeling you have as a reporter, at least that I have, that you're destroying somebody's reputation, someone in public life. In both cases, on the basis of things that have to do with their private behavior. It's not a fun thing to do. It feels like it's a public service. I feel it's important, but there's not like a sense of glee in doing these things. And it's incredibly important to get it right. So it, none of these things are easy. You really have to be really certain. You're not new to this kind of thing. You wrote a book, a very acclaimed book, about Clarence Thomas and the Anita Hill hearings. And lots of people who don't remember history so well are drawing parallels. So why don't I ask you, an expert, who is doing live reporting in the instant case and also deeply reported what happened 27 years ago, what are the real parallels and where are the real differences between what happened then and what's happening now? 
So we don't know the outcome yet. The big question is, will it come out differently in this particular case? Of course, they're not exactly identical. They're different charges that had to do with sexual harassment. This has to do with sexual assault. One thing I I should say right up front is, as I was saying before, it takes time to really get to the bottom of, you know, a fight like this and when both sides seem credible. And in the case of the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings, it took Jill Abramson, the former editor of the New York Times and a friend of mine since high school, and myself three years to get the story right. And even then, when we published Strange Justice, which came out in 1994, we said the preponderance of evidence appears to make it seem that Clarence Thomas lied. But you couldn't say 100%. It was the preponderance of the evidence. And so, you know, in this case, we're talking about something that's happening in real time, unfolding really fast in a matter of days. And so it's much harder... at this point to know how this is going to come out. But there are a lot of parallels. For one thing, both Anita Hill and Christine Blasey Ford were reluctant witnesses. They didn't want to come out in public. Their names were leaked, and they had to make a decision about whether to step forward into the limelight in what was sure to be a thankless forum. In the case, though, of Anita Hill, the FBI played actually a bigger role. They really did go and interview a number of people. Here, they had to be dragged in, you know, in in a last-minute compromise when the Democrats were up in arms over it and Senator Flake was confronted by two women in an elevator screaming at him. It took all of that to get the FBI in. But is there anything different today in the culture and in people's understanding of sexual misconduct and harassment and assault. From your perspective, you know, both as a woman and as somebody who has written incredibly important pieces about Me Too allegations, is there something different about, you know, the public mind now and awareness of these issues that you think will cause people to react differently than they did 27 years ago? There's so much more social awareness of sexual harassment and sexual assault as issues. And women are so much more emboldened to come forward that one of the things that's been interesting to me covering this is that first you had Christine Blasey Ford and she was kind of pushed out there. But then I had people who saw that and are coming forward saying, I too want to speak about this. So for instance, there was a former girlfriend of Mark Judge who was the other man in the room, supposedly high school student in the room, when Christine Blasey Ozzie Ford says she was assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh. He was there, and he had a girlfriend in college who reached out to me, and she said, I can't stand by and watch him lie. I want to come forward. Other women feel I'm not going to let Christine Blasey Ford just hang out there unsupported the way Anita Hill hung out there unsupported. I think that was part of Ramirez's feeling about why she wanted to go on the record, which she felt there's more to this. It's not just Christine Blasey Ford's allegation. Other women felt I'm going to speak up also. Who do you think is more angry, the people who support Kavanaugh or the people who oppose Kavanaugh? Because we saw a lot of anger from Lindsey Graham and, you know, and just seeing reports about what the fallout may be in the election. What's your view, having covered these things for a long time? And by the way, also noting in your book what happened after the Anita Hill hearings, it is true that Clarence Thomas got confirmed to the Supreme Court. And I think I, I may have this wrong, but something like 11 Democratic senators voted for him. And a bunch of those 
folks got voted out of office the following year, including a Democratic senator from Illinois. Senator Alan Dixon. Alan That's Dixon, absolutely right. Who, yeah. who thought that they would avoid more fallout at home by sort of begrudgingly voting for Clarence Thomas. And he got defeated by Carol Mosley Brown, the first black woman to serve on the Judiciary Committee. That's absolutely right. Many of the senators at the time of Vanita Hill thought it was the easy vote, the safe vote to just go ahead and confirm him. And the voters just took it out on them afterwards. There was just a wave of women who went to the polls and a number of women who were elected that year, including Dianne Feinstein, who's now the ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee. So one of the things that's also changed in this particular court fight now is that It's women's votes in many ways in the Senate that are up in the air that both sides are fighting for. You've got Senator Collins from Maine and Senator Murkowski from Alaska. And those votes are the ones that that are going to probably decide this. And they're both women's votes. Do you think if we had an equal number of men and women in the Senate distributed between the parties that this would even be a close vote? No. That's interesting. I don't. I think women's, you know, women, it's been amazing to me how many women have come forward privately to me and said, this happened to me too. Things like that happened to them also. Women I work with, all kinds of women. Women understand what these women are saying. And what are they saying about the men who don't seem to believe these allegations? Are they angry at them or, you know, or disappointed? You know, I've had – I mean, it's not just women who are who are critical of the men like Lindsey Graham. I think there's a sort of a certain theme that's being propounded by the supporters of Kavanaugh that, oh, boys will be boys and this is just how guys are and really what's the problem? And I know a lot of men who've said to me, that's not how we are. I'm married. I've – dated many men beforehand. That's not how the men I knew were or how my husband is. So that argument may fly with some people, but it sure doesn't fly with a lot of women. And it also doesn't fly with a lot of men. You know, I'm not going on my own personal polling, which is only a handful of people who are friends and people I know. Look at the polls. The polls are really interesting. They show that, first of all, Kavanaugh's not a popular nominee to begin with, but he is absolutely opposed by a majority of particularly college-educated women. So I have to ask this question, and maybe you get this and it's an annoying question, but on several of these stories, they were not written by one person. They were written by you, and you've been an award-winning, amazing investigative journalist for a long time but they were written by you and Ronan Farrow. And in some quarters, people have noticed when there's been commentary on the reporting, sometimes people mention Ronan and they fail to mention Jane. Do you notice that? Is there a reason for that? Does it bother you? Is there sexism in that? Are you mad at me for asking the question? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've noticed that my Twitter feed is filled with people saying, don't forget Jane. And, you know, the truth is I hadn't felt forgotten. So I feel highly celebrated and highly lucky to have this job and and actually very lucky to have Ronan. Um, The two of us, it's a change for The New Yorker. We didn't have double bylines there until, you know, we've started doing more kind of breaking news for the web. And it's been years since I've had somebody to work with. Uh, Jill Abramson and I, for instance, had worked together on a book and, and some other things. And Ronan's fantastic to work with. I think it's only natural. I mean, face it, he's a star. He's the child of movie stars. There's a phenomenal amount of interest in him. And he just won the Pulitzer Prize. And he seems to have every other award you can think of from, you know, Rhodes Scholarship. And I was, you know, 
teasing him recently. I think he's a bit of a slacker because I don't think he's <laughs> he has not won Wimbledon yet. <laughs> well, it depends on you know what the chair rump is like in order to win a Grand, exactly. Slam, a Grand Slam event, as we've discussed on the show. Can I ask an arcane question? How is it decided whose name goes first in the byline? So ordinarily, what happens is it's alphabetical. Pharaoh's name first and then mayor. But sometimes one person's done a lot more work than the other, and then they, then they would reverse it. So every now and then, I think on the Schneiderman piece, my name came first because I'd written it and did, you know, an awful lot of the reporting. Though Ronan did very important reporting, very important reporting on it, too. That would be the tip-off. Jane, I want to thank you. Uh, we spent all this time talking about Kavanaugh, which I think is urgent, but we didn't have time because we don't have enough to talk about your reporting on dark money, on interference in the election, but I encourage everybody who's listening to religiously read Jane Mayer, things she's written in the past and everything you'll write coming up, and you'll let me know if that weird, dramatic phone call that you took right before we started taping results in something. Okay, great. You'll be the first to know. Okay. I, I... Now you're mocking me, but it's okay. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. So I've said before that sort of the way I end the show falls into two categories. One is something that sort of struck me in the news. And the other category, less frequent, is, you know, what I did over the weekend. And this, this falls into that second category. So I hope you'll indulge me. And it's something I've mentioned before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. So if you follow me on Twitter, you may have seen that... Last week on uh, Saturday, after a very terrible, horrible week with respect to the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, no matter what side of the aisle you're on or where you are ideologically, I think if you're an American, last week was tough. Thursday seemed to go on for about 90 days. And the twists and turns and what the future is going to hold for the country because of the court and with the elections coming up, you know, it's nice sometimes to take a step back and remember what's important personally to people, and to remember people who are important to you and who made you what you are. So with some happiness, I traveled uh, south to New Jersey to my old high school, where I was given the honor of being able to induct the best teacher I ever had, Dr. Barbara Tomlinson, into the high school hall of fame. Barbara Tomlinson, if you've heard me talk about her before, was my American literature teacher, AP Lit teacher. She's my American history teacher. She was also the faculty advisor to the school paper, of which I was the editor-in-chief. And interestingly, as far as this week goes, she was also the faculty advisor to the yearbook. And I think if you take a look at various people's yearbook pages from those times in the 80s, none of them would have a problem with the Judiciary Committee, I don't think. What was interesting about the event was lots of students there who had Barbara Tomlinson years ago and as... Dr. T said in her own remarks, lots of people came up to her and remembered particular things that she had taught them or particular moments in class 30 years later, 35 years later, that stuck with them. She doesn't remember those things. She's had a lot of students over a long period of time. And she said how gratifying it was to hear that things I said and lessons I taught have stuck with people. I had a number of such examples myself. I remember an assignment she gave once on how to write an introductory paragraph to an essay. Literally, just writing an introductory paragraph to an essay on the Civil War. It taught me more about writing and about organizing your thoughts than anything else I remember. Sounds like a simple thing, but it was an important thing. And 
Barbara Tomlinson also said, you know, the interesting thing about being a teacher, you come in and you try to teach students every day and you don't really know if you made any difference or if it mattered to anyone, except as she said, on days like this. So I just want to let folks know, I've told this to her and I'm saying it to my listening audience of tens of millions, that if you tune in and you have some respect for the way I think about things, if you have some respect for the way I talk about things, if you have some respect for the way I reflect on history or on the world, a lot of that is because of Dr. Tomlinson. So let me end by saying, if there's a teacher in the world who made a difference to you, you should let that teacher know. It took me a lot of, you know, I fell out of touch with my teacher for many, many years, and then we got reacquainted when I became the U.S. attorney. My mother sought her out and wanted to make sure that Dr. T was at my swearing-in ceremony in 2009, and we've been in touch since. But don't lose touch with people who meant something to you, and if you have an opportunity to thank them, you should. And then second, to all the teachers out there who I think are underappreciated, underpaid, undervalued, know that even if students don't take the time, don't have a platform of a microphone or a podcast or a stage, that they appreciate you, they miss you, and they wouldn't be where they were without you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jane Mayer. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Courtney Harrell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, and Tamara Sepper. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.